We are in the book of Genesis, and you know we're now halfway done. Halfway done. Seems like it's going by fast, and I don't know about you, but I've profited from it greatly. And uh, one of the main themes that we want to get from Genesis that I believe will change everything for all of us, like literally everything, if you deal with anxiety, if you will grasp how much God loves you, that anxiety can disappear. If you're having trouble with resentment or forgiveness towards someone, if you will realize how much God loves you, that can overflow towards the other person. And we just got done singing, oh, how he loves us. And I'm glad we sing that over and over again because it needs to sink deep into our spirit so that it can solve some of the issues that we're dealing with because it all comes from that. That that greater love has no man this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that indeed is what Christ has done for us. So our scripture reader this morning is Aureli Medina. So Aureli, if you'll come on up here and I'll let you get this microphone right here. Are you excited about our Spanish service coming up? Yes. If anybody, if you want a translator, she's fluent. She's very good at Spanish. Mi español es muy poquito, but hers is muy grande. <laughs> All right. Genesis chapter 26. Read God's word for us this morning. And you all follow along on the screen as Aureli reads for us. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to you offsprings of all these lands. And in your offspring, all their nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place shall kill kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich, and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flock and herd and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled, stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. 
And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, That water is ours. So he called the name he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in this land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servants Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let you make a covenant with and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from, his, from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to, to this day. When Esau, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimuth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aureli. Appreciate that very much. I warned her yesterday. I said there's lots of hard names in there. And she did pretty good, didn't she? So that's why I got a school teacher to read chapter 26 because of all the hard words in there. So well, let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. This is a long chapter with lots of information. But Lord, we're not here this morning to just gather facts and information and to know more. We're here to know you. We want to know you better. And you reveal yourself in your word. You reveal your character in your word. And so, Father, as we study this story, these historical events, help us to see Jesus Christ more clearly so that we can become 
more like him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I know Rob will know this, but who knows who these people are right here? Yeah. If you're ever picking up teams for trivia, pick Rob. He knows a lot of this old trivia stuff. Okay, these are three stooges. But can you name them? Mo, Larry, Curly. In that order. Actually, Mo to the left, Curly in the middle, Larry to the right. But how many of you know that there were actually, how many stooges total? There was six stooges total. Because, yeah, Curly got out of the scene and then Shemp came in. Okay, I gave you his name. Who knows what the one in the bottom middle's name is? That was uh, Curly. It was Cur- well, I'll show you. I'll just show you. It's Cur- one's Curly and one's Curly Joe. And so their names are kind of really small. Joe is in the bottom middle. And then Curly Joe. Say so Curly Joe, Curly Joe. And then they had Shemp, which was the, probably the weirdest of all the three Stooges, you know. And in some ways, in some ways, I don't be totally disrespectful, the three patriarchs are kind of like the three Stooges. When you see some of the dumb things that they do and the mistakes that they make, you know, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they, they, the Bible lifts them up as the three heroes of Israel, and yet they do some pretty dumb stuff, which isn't just degrading. It's not trying to degrade people. It's trying to show you that people are not perfect. And all the imperfect heroes of the Old Testament point to the perfect hero of the New Testament, which is who? Jesus. Jesus is the only one. That's why the Bible shows all these characters with their flaws and it shows some pretty deep flaws. But what's also interesting is Abraham, there's 14 chapters about Abraham. Jacob, there's 11 chapters about him. But how many chapters about Isaac? Basically just one, this one right here. He's the least spoken of amongst the three patriarchs, the three main patriarchs. He's kind of the shemp of the three patriarchs. It's like the least is said about him, and he's not the most liked one of all. By the way, there's a fourth patriarch that's uh, also mentioned. Now, usually when they mention the title, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't mention this one for a reason, because the original three, but because he's one of the sons, and that's Joseph. And there's 14 chapters in Genesis about Joseph, just as many as there is Abraham. And the reason being, as we will see in the weeks ahead, is Joseph is an amazing picture of Jesus. There is no sin mentioned about Joseph at all. Now, you could infer it into some of it, like his kind of boasting about his uh, dreams, but it doesn't say he boasted. But when you read it, you think maybe he he did. Whether it's implied or inferred, we don't really know, but that's just something in the weeks ahead. So the way we're going to divide up Genesis 26 this morning is we're going to talk about the blessings on him in spite of a famine, blessing in spite of lying, blessing in spite of difficulties, and then a little word change on here, blessing, not in spite, but in sight of others. And then finally, we'll talk about blessing in spite of family. So these five points we'll go through here quickly. So there's a famine in the land. I don't think any of us are in this room are old enough to know what famine is like. If you maybe had grandparents that lived during a depression, during the, the, um, the, the famine and the water shortage all across the country, the dust bowl all across the Midwest, that's the closest thing America has ever come to a famine. But at this time in history, this was a common occurrence. It was something they expected like probably every 100 to 150 years. In fact, this is approximately 100 years since the previous famine mentioned in the Bible. In fact, he makes sure 
Moses, as he's writing Genesis, he's wanting you to know this is not the same famine that Abraham went through. Because some people say, oh, look, this is the same story, and they got the names mixed up. He's, he's letting you know that detail, that this is a different and unique famine about 100 years later. There's different types of famines. Obviously, going through a famine where there's a shortage of water or a famine caused by pestilence, but either way, there's a shortage of food. It's a scary time. People died during famines. Health declined during famines. People started fighting over food. It was not a pleasant era to live in during a famine. But there's also spiritual famines. Amos, Amos talks about that. He says, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread. And the word bread here means food in the generic sense. Nor a thirst for water, but a hearing the words of the Lord. I'm going to send a drought, a famine, a shortage of nutrition from God's word, where people just don't want to hear it, people don't want anything to do with it, and people will be starving. We are living in such a day here in America. Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. People have no idea what the Bible says, and yet the only thing they know about the Bible is it's homophobic and bigoted, and outdated, and that's what those crazy Christians believe. All they know is what their high school teachers and college professors are telling and criticism of the Bible. And a really good question to ask to your friends, not to be snarky, but truly out of compassion, is have you tried reading the Bible? The advantage that we have as believers, that the book that we read is not an intellectually stimulating book only, it's alive, it's powerful. It is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to us and through the Word. The Bible says in Hebrews that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and bone and marrow. It cuts deep down inside of us. Have you had that experience? Where you read the Word of God and go, oh man, that is, man, that is me. Holy, I, I need to hear this. And yet Amos says that there's times in history where there's a drought in the land and people are starving for the word of God. That's why, and yet one of the reactions we see in some churches is try to make church more entertaining. Tell more jokes. Make some crazy stories. Put a car up on the stage. Do something just to get people interested. And I'm not saying all those things are necessarily horribly wrong, but isn't the word of God not sufficient enough to where if we preach the word of God faithfully, it, it pricks the hearts of men? that the Holy Spirit uses it to speak to people. That's why we're committed to the Word of God here at Revolution Church. That's why we don't apologize for reading 35 verses you know, in a row and going through them verse by verse. You might be one of those people going through a famine right now. Like It seems like, gosh, it just seems like it's a long time since I feel like God has spoken to me through His Word, that, that, that the Holy Spirit's leading me. Maybe you're going through a dry spell right now. Hold on, because there's, there's hope for you. So there's a famine in the land. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, does that name sound familiar? Who else went to Abimelech? Abraham did. Now, here's the thing. Abimelech is like Caesar or Pharaoh. It's a title more than it is a name. It means, literally, my father is king. So as kings would pass on the throne and the crown to each one of their sons, they're passing on that. So this isn't likely, although it's possible, that it's the same guy, Abimelech, but it's probably his son or even grandson. 
And when it says it's of the Philistines, technically the Philistines aren't there right now, but when Moses is writing this, they know full well who the Philistines are. It'd be kind of like, we, we talk about the Delaware Indians. I'm from Delaware. Well, there was no such thing as Delaware when there were Delaware Indians, but because of where they lived, we call them the Delaware Indians, even though Delaware came later. The same is true with the phrase Philistines. Those people later became called the Philistines, but at this time they're not called the Philistines. Some people look, point to that and say it's a contradiction in the Bible. It's not a contradiction, as I just explained, using Delaware Indians as an analogy. So this guy, Abimelech, is probably the son. Maybe he knows about Abraham. Maybe he doesn't. We know that this story sounds really familiar. But the Lord appeared to Isaac. This is the first time that he's appeared. He's spoken to Isaac already. He has not appeared to Isaac. By the way, how many of you saw the movie His Only Son in the theaters? Really, really good. I strongly recommend it. It goes through the whole story of Abraham offering up Isaac. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. Okay, I stayed to the end of the movie, figured that out. But anyway, he, so here he appears to him. He had heard from his dad about God appearing to him, but now it's becoming personal. And, and God has a warning for him. He says, do not go down to Egypt. Now, why would he tell them that? Who, who did that last time there was a famine? His dad did. How did that turn out? Not good, because he brought back with him a bunch of servants. One of the servants was Hagar, and we know how that whole Hagar messed up the whole family scenario there. Family dynamics caused nothing but problems. In the Middle East, the tension between Israel and other Arab nations is all because, because of that. And so he's saying, hey, don't do that. We're not repeating the sin of your father in this situation. So don't go there. He said, I want you to dwell in the land, which I'll tell you of. And see, that's where Abraham wasn't trusting God. God put him in the promised land, said, I will take care of you. And in the first year, there's a drought, the famine. So Abraham, boom, goes to Egypt. Like, hey, did you not trust God? And there are circumstances in our life where we need to trust God. Unemployment, divorce, sickness. Sometimes we want to up and run to Egypt. But God said, hey, I brought this into your situation for a reason. Maybe you need to stay put and trust me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to sojourn in the land. Sojourn means to a temporary traveling in. And what you did is you shared the land with other people. So if you're living amongst Canaanites, the Canaanites own the land, and you would say, hey, is it okay if we just kind of travel through, and as our sheep go from field to field, from hill to hill to mountain, mountain, is it okay if we pass through? And oftentimes they paid people for that. They shared goods. They did different things to work out a deal. <clears throat> so sojourners were like migrant workers. They weren't citizens. They came in to work amongst you, and to just do their thing with their cattle and their herds, and you, and you try to make it a mutually beneficial situation. So right now, they're in the promised land, but they don't own the promised land. That's important. <clears throat> and he says, and I will give you all these lands, future tense. Right now, you're temporary tourists traveling through doing business, but I'm eventually going to give you this land. And what you see is, not only did Abraham do this, but Isaac does it. He kind of travels around and God is giving him a preview saying, you're going to own all this eventually. <clears throat> First Peter calls us Christians, sojourners. He said, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, temporary travelers, and even exiles, people who've been kicked out. So the world says, hey, you're not really part of us. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to act like people who were earth 
is temporary. And here's how you act like it's temporary. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If we're not careful, we can fall in love with all this. I'm not talking about this building only. I'm talking about your nice house, your nice car, your nice 401k, your nice entertainment, all the things. If we, I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy those. The fact the Bible says in Colossians 3 that God has given us the, all those things to richly enjoy. But we can't fall in love with the things of the world because we're just temporary here. We're sojourners. In fact, the Bible has a whole list of things that calls us, calls us pilgrims. Pilgrims are people just passing through exiles. In other words, we're on the outside looking in foreigners or aliens, sojourners. It's even called ambassadors, which is one of the most powerful ones. Let's say that you are an ambassador to Belgium. Okay? Your citizenship is where? The United States. You go over there. You mingle with the Belgian people. You enjoy Belgium food. You get a temporary home in Belgium. You interact with them. But your main job is to do what? To represent the United States of America. Your main loyalty is where? The United States of America. So you, need, you will act differently than all the Belgians. You'll be friendly to them and all that stuff, but you will make it very clear that you are an American, you're different, and that your loyalty is somewhere else. That's the picture of you and me, that we're supposed to be in this world, that yes, we mingle with people, we're friendly to people, we love people, but we're, this is not our home. We're just passing through. We're here to represent a different kingdom the kingdom of God. We're here to represent the God's will and not be too wrapped up and get our roots too deep where we're at. Colossians 3 tells us how to do that. You need to focus your mind to set your mind. That's what the focus means, to direct your mind on things where? Which direction? Above. Things above. Heaven, we picture as above. Not on things on earth. And here's why. Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So when you got saved, and talk about people who are saved here this morning, when you were born again, as Jesus puts it in John chapter 3, you identified with Jesus, Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And you, God gave you a new life. You went from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And then when you were baptized, you symbolized that to everybody watching, that you died with Jesus Christ, you were buried, and on the third day you rose again. And that, that's what your faith is, and the baptism doesn't save you but you're showing, publicly displaying that, you're now saying that, hey, because I am alive with Jesus Christ and Christ is up there, this is my home. That's my home. This is temporary, and that will change your perspective. Think about that. If everything is here and your house burns down, you're going to be pretty distraught. But if everything is there and your house burns down, you're like, ah, man, I don't like this, but, you know, this world's not my home. God's going to provide. This home was just temporary anyway. And whether it's your job or anything you can even name on your list, you won't get overly attached because your attachments, your focus, your heart, your affections on things above. He says, and in your offspring, the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So his offspring is talking about what nation? What nation is the offspring of Isaac? Say it. Israel, right, Israel. And you know, to this day, Israel is one of the greatest blessings on the planet. Think about what Israel has done for the nations of the earth. 
We, we have the Bible because of Israel, because of the descendants of Isaac. We have the Ten Commandments, which are, is the bedrock of Western civilization. And any, every, any nation on the world that is moral and ethical and has some foundationally good government, it's based on the Ten Commandments. No other document is like it. And then also, the best thing Israel gave us is the Messiah. We forget sometimes that Jesus is Jewish. He's not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed sissy. He's a very rugged, Middle Eastern Israeli Jew, okay? And this is the greatest things that Israel has given to us amongst many. And Galatians, Paul puts it this way. In Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile this morning. Yes, that should be almost everybody in this room, if not everybody, so that we, we too could receive the promised spirit through faith. We can get in on this deal. It's a, it's a great deal. It, it's, a, it's a fantastic promise, not just given to nation Israel, but so Israel could share it with the world. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, Therefore we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. I'm a big supporter of the nation of Israel. I believe that they are God's chosen people. I believe that what just what the, the end times prophecies say that many thousands and millions of Jews will come back to Christ, and it's happening right now. You're seeing Jews being, in fact, just in the past couple of weeks, the uh, the Israeli legislator has presented laws about against trying to evangelize Jews because there's so many Jews getting saved right now by the thousands that are coming to Christ. Like you, you Christians are right. Jesus was the Messiah. We've been waiting for a Messiah for thousands of years. He hasn't come. And even the fact that we've been reborn as a nation in 1948 fulfills biblical prophecy. And so we should, as a church and as Christians, be praying constantly for the, the nation and for Jerusalem. We as followers of Christ are called to, like, to be like Abraham, to be a blessing to the nations. If you moved away from your street, would the people on your street miss you? Would they be sad you're gone? If Revolution Church closed its doors, would Brookside Village be disappointed? I, I can tell you on that one, I think the answer would be yes. I, I went to Brookside Village's potluck dinner this past Thursday. They also had Meet the Candidates, and there was a lot of people from Brookside Village there. And comment after comment was, man, your church is doing a great job. Whatever you guys are doing, keep it up. We appreciate the stuff. And one guy said, we love the sign, how there's birthday wishes on the sign. So thank you, Patrick, for putting those on there. And have we made enough of an impact on this community? No, not yet. We're working on it. Vacation Bible School and other things like that and other community outreaches, picnics and Fourth of July and all that we'll continue to do. But I want us to, we're just getting started and getting our roots deep in here. I want it to be where if something happened to Revolution Church, Brookside Village and Pearland would be disappointed we were gone. We need to be that kind of blessing. And here's why, think about this. God says, I'm going to bless you, Isaac, and here's why. Not because you're so good. Not because you're anything special necessarily in yourself. Not because you're so talented or good looking. Here's why I'm blessing you, Isaac. Because your dad, Abraham, obeyed my voice. Hey, teens, do you know a lot of the blessings that come on your life are because of your parents? You're in a good situation. A lot of adults in this room, you're blessed because of your parents. And your parents may not have been the best perfect or perfect people, but a lot of times we inherit blessings, and that's the grace of God. That's something that we should be thankful for. Um, he says, Abraham kept my charge. And listen to this. This is really curious. I was looking at this week thinking, wait a minute. Abraham kept God's commandments, statutes, and laws. 
Who gave the commandments, statutes, and laws? Who's the lawgiver? Moses. Has Moses even been born yet? No. How is it that Abraham's keeping the commandments, statutes, and laws? Yeah, because Patrick knows because it's written on our heart. Paul explains why. That they, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. You see, everybody is born with the Ten Commandments written upon their hearts. Every culture on the world knows that adultery is wrong. I'm not saying that they keep that commandment, but they know. Every culture on the world knows that stealing is wrong, murder is wrong, lying is wrong. Some practice it better than others, but they all know it. You could be three years old and steal something that's not yours, and you will feel guilty. Because why? The law of God is written on your heart. And guess what? Because of that, you're without excuse. Nobody can say, well, I never read the Bible. I never knew that stuff. We break God's law all the time, and we deserve God's punishment because we break the laws that are written already on our heart. So Isaac settled in Gerar. He didn't go down to Egypt. And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Deja vu all over again. Now, did he know his dad did the same thing? Maybe, maybe not. I would say probably. How could he not know? Number one, I think Abraham probably told him, which puts more guilt on Isaac. You did it anyway, even dad told you it was a bad idea. You know, and then also certainly from the world around them, that he's heard the legends of these stories about his dad. But here we go again. He is afraid. He did this because he was acting out of fear. Fear is horrible, people. <laughs> when you do things because you're afraid of what others think, it's a bad situation. He says, my wife, you know, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me. Who's he thinking about right here? Yeah. What about her safety? What about Rebecca's safety being wife snatched and taken and put into a harem? Not the safest place to be. If you're in a harem and you displease your master, it's a bad situation. But he's all concerned about himself. We make really bad decisions when we're selfish. And guess who's selfish? We all are. Last night I went for a walk for about two miles. And I was talking to the Lord on the second half of the walk, the mile back, just about how selfish Gary is. And just trying to ask God to please help me with this because I feel like I see everything through filters of what, how's this going to benefit me? And that's not what the Lord wants me to be. That's not the way Christ would behave. And so here's Isaac once again repeating the same selfishness of his dad. But it didn't matter who his dad was. And if his dad was human, he's going to be selfish. And we all struggle with that. Amen? And said when he had been there a long time, so he's dwelling there for a long time, Abimelech of the Philistines looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Laughing is not the best translation here. And whenever you see different translations have different words all over the map, it's because that one Hebrew word is really difficult to translate with one word in English. Some tra- the King James says sporting with her, like kind of flirting with her, but in a sexual way. Um, other translations say caressing her. So best translation, if you put it in the Gary Modern translation, he's he pat her on the butt maybe. I don't know. I Actually, I did say butt in church, okay? But anyway... He did something that was in a fun, flirty way with his wife that's okay between husband and wife, but obviously something he wouldn't have done with his sister. Okay? So he wasn't just punching her in the arm or kidding with her or whatever. He touched her in a way that was between a husband and wife. And Abimelech saw that. Now, 
How did he just happen to be at the right window at the right time when he did this at that same time? Number one, the sovereignty of God. We believe in that. We believe that God is sovereign. He's in control of all events of human history. But I wonder, I wonder if Abimelech was keeping his eye on them. I mean, he's like, hey, my dad, Abimelech, who was king before me, told me about his dad. And this whole story of she's my sister, that sounds so familiar. I think I remember my dad telling me about that. I'm going to keep an eye on this couple and see if they really are brother and sister. Oh no, they definitely are not. Either that's his wife or they're from Arkansas. Something crazy is going on here. Okay? Anyway, sorry for those of you from Arkansas. All right. So now, verse 9 says, Abimelech said to him, Behold, she is your wife. Like, I knew it. My dad was right. Again, I'm reading that part into the story. How could he just say she's my sister? There's some anger going on here because, remember, what happened in Egypt? A plague hit the land, okay? And then it was a little softer with the first Abimelech, okay? But a lot of women became barren and nobody was having babies. And like, what's going on here? For months and months, nobody's having babies. That possibly could have included stillborn babies. I don't know. Again, but there was something so severe going on that that, that Abimelech, the dad, was not happy. And he's like, you got to do this to us again? You did it to Egypt? You did it to our country before? And now you're going to bring this stuff back here again like your dad did? He said, but, well, you know, I told her because I thought I would die. So again, here the selfishness kicks in. And Bilmuk says, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might have easily have lain with your wife. This is a weird culture here. Again, wife snatching was common. Did you know in Croatia and other places in Europe that still happens? Where if you want to marry somebody, just simply kidnap them. You know, and it happens, and not condoning it, not suggesting it, that there's better ways to find a wife than that, okay? But he's saying in our culture, it's easily that someone could just grab your wife and said, hey, let's go. And he said, that could have easily happened. You, you don't realize how close you were to putting yourself, your wife, and all of us in danger. And that would have brought guilt upon us all. It's funny that they don't take wife snatching seriously. They don't take killing a man to take his wife seriously, but they take adultery really seriously. It's funny how people pick and choose their laws, but that's what they were doing. So Abimelech warns all the people, he says, whoever touches this man or his wife will be put to death. Pretty severe consequences going on here. So they get that problem solved. Isaac actually stays there. He plant. so right now, because the famine and things moving around, He's taking a break from sheep and cattle, and he's going to try farming. He may still have that side business going on, but he's going to try that. And for someone who hadn't farmed before, he reaps a hundredfold in the first year. How is that possible? The verse tells us it's because the Lord blessed him. Now, before you get too cocky about how your job is going and how you're the best at what you do, and you've had a wonderful first quarter, realize where the blessing comes from. The very strength to get up in the morning and go to work. The very reason that you have this job and not someone else who also applied for that job is the blessing of the Lord. I'm not discounting your talent. I'm not discounting your education. I'm not discounting your charming personality. But there's always someone who is better than any one of those categories than you. And we need to realize every day when we go to work, when we have the privilege of earning money and having our needs provided for, we need to realize it's the blessing of the Lord. It's not, it's not all the blessing of the Lord, like you do nothing. I'm going to sit back and do nothing. I'm not even in education and God's going to bless me. No, it's both. God wants you to cooperate with his sovereignty. So then it goes on to say, and the man became rich. Notice the progression here. And then he gained more 
And then again, even more till he was very rich. And in Hebrew, whenever you want to emphasize something, you just say it twice. It's just like you can say, hey, somebody's rich, but those people are rich, rich. And that's what it literally is in Hebrew. It's rich, rich. So he's like one of the wealthiest guys around. And wait a minute. What did he just get done doing? Lying. And now he's rich, rich. Now, there's several ways we can look at that. One way not to look at it is, hey, if you want to get rich, lie. (laughs) That's not what it's saying here. What it's saying is, even in spite of our stupidity and our sinfulness, God still blesses. Everybody in this room, is there anybody who has sinned this week? All of us have, right? And yet here you are, you're being blessed of God. Here you are sitting in air conditioning. You drove here in a decent car, probably a really nice car. You came from probably a really nice home. We are the 1% that's living way better than the rest of the world. And yet we disappoint God every day. And yet he blesses us. He loves us, just like we sang. He loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, in spite of our stupidity. That's what the lesson is here this morning. Right on the heels of he told a lie, and then he went out and farmed and made a hundredfold. Crazy how God is good to us. He had possessions and flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines, now they envy him. So he's like so successful. And this again, in the region, there's a famine. He's gotten away from the heart of the famine, but still the whole region's being affected. And everybody's struggling over here. He's like killing it. He's banking left and right and making, and the family's like, hey, this is not fair. How come his God is blessing him and not us? Well, maybe you have the wrong God, but we'll talk about that. So the Philistines, they had stopped up in, in the past when Abraham dug wells everywhere. Again, he's a sojourner. He doesn't own land. So he goes to, goes to land. And it's like if I came into your backyard and I start digging a hole, you'd be like, okay, you can do whatever you want there. And I, well, we can, you, can, you can hang out here for a while. But then when I strike water, like, hey, wait a minute. This is on my property. You need to move on. And so Abraham dug wells all over the place. And out of spite, they filled the wells. So, Ab- so watch what happens here. Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You are much mightier than we. Now, think about that. Abimelech probably knew, in fact, I would bank on the fact that he knew, that remember Abraham with only 318 men defeated five kings to deliver Sodom? He had his own personal army and he took on tens of thousands and made them all run to rescue Lot from when Sodom got taken into captivity. And so, He's thinking, wait a minute, Isaac, he's, he's multiplying servants, he's multiplying relatives, he's got all these things going on, he's got lots of employees, he's got lots of cattle, he's living right in our land, he, and if, if Abraham could beat armies with 318, and he's probably got 1,000, he could wipe us out. So hey, you know what? You're no longer to welcome to, to, to sojourn on our land. You need to move on, you need to get out of here, probably yesterday. So Isaac departed from there. He didn't put up a struggle. He didn't put up a fight. And he camped in the valley of Gerar. So Gerar, and then there's the valley of Gerar, which is out farther away. And he settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells that had been dug by his father. So he, he unblocks and unclogs these wells that his dad had dug. And the Philistines had stopped it before. And he gave them names that his father, so he renamed them because they plugged them up and no longer had a name. And he renames them the way his dad named them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley there and found a spring of water, so this isn't just some wells, you go down and there's just water laying there and you have to 
pump it up or reel it up through buckets. This was a bubbling spring. This was water coming forth. So God's blessing him. And then watch this. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen. Does that sound familiar? Remember, Abraham's herdsmen were prospering and Lot's herdsmen were prospering, so much so that their cattle and their employees were overlapping. They were starting to get fights with each other. And Abraham says, hey, let's solve this problem. You pick a direction you want to go. You go that way and I'll go the opposite way. And he let Lot choose first, which showed disrespect by Lot by not letting the elder choose. And Lot says, hey, I want to go down there to Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want to actually live in Sodom and Gomorrah because none of those people are wicked. I just want to live on the edge and make some money. Of course, where does Lot end up? In the city years later. So Abraham, though, went the way that God wanted him to go. But this is a repeat of history here. The herdsmen are overlapping. So he called the name of the well Esek, which means contention, because they contended with him. Then they dug yet another well. They quarreled over, over that one. So he called it uh, Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. And now they finally didn't quarrel. You know what's interesting? You compare the way Abraham dealt with problems and the way Isaac dealt with problems. Abraham was like, hey, why didn't you tell me there was a problem with the herdsmen? You know, it's the first I've heard of it. And they solved it out. Abraham would confront people. Hey, you took Lot? I'm going to come get him. Isaac's like, uh, whatever, I'll just move on. Oh, you want the well? Okay, whatever, I'll move on. Now, I'm not saying Abraham's right and Isaac's wrong, or Isaac's right and Abraham's wrong. What I'm saying is sometimes there's a, there's a, there's a place to stand up for yourself, and sometimes there's a like, you know what, whatever, I'm out of here. And you have to have wisdom from God to know which one is right. Proverbs talks about it's a wise man who leaves off from a quarrel before it even starts. You know, I know you wives have been in argument with your husbands at least sometime years ago, but remember back way when when you actually argued, okay? And you could tell it wasn't going in a good direction. You're like, you know what? I really don't want to talk about it right now. And you walked away. That, sometimes that's the best thing to do. And sometimes it's like, you know what? We do need to hash this out. And it takes wisdom and discernment to know which one is which. It's funny. I think the contrast between Abraham and Isaac is trying to show us that those are things that we have to consider. Anybody ever been to Rehoboth, Delaware? The beach? Okay, that's where I, I grew up near there. And what's funny is we went to the beach all the time. And to this day, I hate the beach. I don't have any interest in going there. But Rehoboth means a place or a room for us, a space for us. And he said, he calls it Rehoboth because for now, the Lord has made room for us. We feel like everywhere we go, we're getting kicked out and kicked out. And a famine moves us here. And a well dispute moves us here and moves us, keeps moving us around. But finally, maybe God has a place for us here. <clears throat> And what you're going to see now is, not only do you see blessing in spite of difficulties, blessings in spite of lying, but now you see that blessing is not just in spite of, but in the sight of others. This is super important. From there they went to Beersheba. This was the place where Abraham had been and where he had met God. And now Isaac's back there where his dad first started with God. So if you follow the map there, the bottom left, Birhaut Laharoi, up to Gerar, the Valley of Gerar, and then over back to Beersheba. <clears throat> it says they went up. It's not up like as a north. What kind of up is it? Altitude, right? It's elevation. They're going up towards the mountains. And so all of this is happening in the promised land. And the Lord appeared to him the same night. So this is the second time God appears. So the same night, he says, I am, not I was, the God of, your, of, your, of Abraham, your father. Is Abraham alive right now? No. 
So why didn't he say, I, I was the God of your dad, Abraham? Why does he not say that? Because Abraham is alive. Because he's the God of the resurrection. Listen, Jesus refers to this story. In Mark chapter 12, he says, And as for the dead being raised, the, the Sadducees were trying to grill Jesus about the resurrection because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe, but they had lots of other problems. So the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, so they were fair, you see. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. That's a good way to remember who believed what. And so he said, so as to your question about the dead being raised, have you not even read the book of Moses? Here's experts in the, in the Pentateuch. And he's like, have you guys not even read the, these books you're talking about? In the passage about the bush, remember the burning bush? How God spoke to who? To Moses, saying, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, and the present tense, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he's saying there has to be a resurrection because God is saying, present tense, I am the, still right now the God of the three patriarchs. And so Jesus is teaching that here. And so God is reminding Isaac, hey, your dad is alive. He's with me. And I'm still his God. He's worshiping me now more than ever, ever when he was on earth. And he says, so therefore, because of the resurrection, don't be afraid. Because of the resurrection, believe that I am with you. You know, people criticize Christianity all the time. Like, well, how can you believe in a God you don't see? How can you believe in these scriptures? How can you believe in all this stuff? It's because a man 2,000 years ago performed miracles, said, I will die on this day, and three days later, I will rise from the dead. And he did every single thing that he said. And there was hundreds and thousands of witnesses who saw it. There was tens of thousands of Christians in the first century who died because they saw it. So there are more eyewitnesses and documentations about the resurrection of Christ than any other historical event. And that's what my hope is in. My faith, I don't, I'm not afraid of what the government's going to do to me because Jesus is alive. I'm, I, am, I know that Jesus is with me because he resurrected from the dead and he's with me in spirit now He'll be with me physically when he comes again. And he, if he promised that he would die on this day and be buried and rose again, if he says, I'm coming again, I think we can trust him. Amen? So he says, so therefore, when we struggle with fear and anxiety, is that you this morning? We need to remind ourselves of the constant presence of our Savior. Think about that. If you're struggling with any of those things, it's because you don't have the, the full assurance that he is right here with you. In fact, he's not just right here with you. He is right here with you. What other God chooses to dwell on the inside of his people? Jesus does. You see, when the nation of Israel followed Moses out of Egypt, they're out in the wilderness like, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? And they come up against the Red Sea they got a mountain on this side, a mountain on this side, and guess now what's coming behind them. Here comes the Egyptian army. Pharaoh said, oh yeah, get out of here. And he's like, wait a minute. And he had a bipolar moment. He's like, I think I'm going to go get them and bring them back. So he takes his army, he leads them out. So they've got the Red Sea in front of them, mountains on the other side, an army chasing them. They're like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The same Jesus who said to Isaac, I'll be with you. He was with Moses. There he is at Charlton Heston right there. In the that dilemma, okay? When the three Hebrew children were cast in the fiery furnace, Jesus was right there with them. 
when the storm was about to sink the boat of fishermen, of disciples, Jesus was right there in the boat with them. If you get laid off your job and you're sent packing, is Jesus right there with you? When your loved one is in a hospital sick and maybe dying, is Jesus right there with you? When, when that loved one does pass away, is Jesus not right there with you? If Jesus promised all these patriarchs, all these disciples, that I will be with you, in fact, he tells us in Scripture, behold, I am with you how often? Always, even to the end of the age, till I come again in person. No, because I am resurrected, I am with you through all these difficulties. What are you going through this morning? What are you having a really hard time with? Believe me when I tell you, as sure as he's resurrected, he's here. He's here. He, he wants to be with you. Acknowledge and believe that he's with you. Don't let the world around you convince you with all that you see. Walk by faith and not by sight. He says, and I'm going to bless you and I'll multiply your offspring. And here's why. Because your dad was obedient. Parents, that's why the reason we need to, if we want our kids to be blessed, we need to be following God's will. Our kids won't be any more blessed than we are if we, if we can't at least expect that. We need to realize that blessings carry on. That's part of God's grace. And Isaac is saying, was hearing from God that all this good stuff that's happened to me, it's because my dad obeyed the Lord. That's a good incentive for us to do the same. Proverbs 27 reminds us of this promise. The righteous who walk in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Be thankful for the legacy that you've inherited. So he built an altar there and he called upon him the Lord. You see several times where the patriarchs build altars, but here it's personal. I'm not just going through religious motions. I'm going to have a conversation with God. I hope that a Sunday doesn't pass where you do that. It's not just being in this building that makes any difference. It's you speaking to God and God speaking to you. So do all these events, lying, famine, altar, do they, do they sound familiar? There's a parallel tract that Moses is giving us here between Abraham and Isaac. You see, Abraham, watch the order. He, builds, he starts off his walk with God by building an altar. Then he has tons of prosperity and success, which leads to the conflict with the herdsmen overlapping. And then there's a famine and he lies to Abimelech. He not only lies to Pharaoh, he lies to Abimelech. And then Isaac's life is lived out in a reverse order. Watch this. He does it. Everything he da- his dad does, but it's a mirror image. He starts off with the famine and lies to Abimelech. But then he becomes prosperous. And then there's conflict with the herdsmen. And then he builds an altar. Look how God orchestrated the father and son's lives to be right there in this chiastic structure of the way the events of their life. It wasn't just written in a chiastic structure. God orchestrated the events of their life to happen this way. So God is showing Isaac that he will keep his covenant with him just like he did with his father Abraham through all of his successes and through all his failures. I am so glad that our God is not fickle. Oh, he loves me today. Oh, he hates me now. I messed up, so where's God? Oh, I did right, God. Will you bless me? Oh, I messed up. I guess you're not going to bless me. And it's like God says, you know what? You may be fickle, but I am faithful. I am with you day by day through your ups, through your downs, through your mountaintops, through your valleys. 
I am with you, and that's what I promise. That's the God who I am. I am faithful even when you are not. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he, Jesus, who began a work in you, that God began a good work in you, say amen? God begins a good work in you. He He will bring it to completion. You don't have to keep yourself saved. If that, if, if that were possible to lose it, you would have lost your salvation 10 minutes after you got it. It's not based on your good works. You can't keep it by your good works. God is the one who is faithful. It is his, Jesus' work on the cross, not your good works that keeps you saved. He will bring your salvation to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You will, the day you got saved, you're guaranteed to be saved until Christ comes again. Now you say, well, Gary, I know people who say they're saved and they live like the devil. It's not because they lost it. The truth is they probably never had it. They're, they're just contradicting it. They, they prayed a quick prayer. They filled out a card. They raised their hand. And they're like, oh, I'm okay. I got life insurance policy now. I'm going to do whatever I want. That shows no real transformation of the heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if any man is truly in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. If that's not happening in your life, you have reason to question whether you really were ever saved to begin with. So Abimelech went to him. Now, see, first time, the famine, Isaac goes to Abimelech, but then Isaac's kicked out of land, and now Abimelech's coming to him. I wonder what's up with that. Isaac thinks it's not anything good. Watch what Isaac's response is. Why have you come to me? You can see he's already got his, he's already got his back up, as they say in East Texas, you know, and he's like, you know, seeing you hate me, and you have sent me away from you. I mean, he sees this guy come. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you trespassing on my land? You, why are you here? You hate me. And of course, it's not that at all. And they're like, oh, hold on. Calm down, Isaac. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And it's not just, is the Lord with you? It's plain. It's as plain as day. Now, wait a minute. This is the guy who lied? But somehow, in spite of his failures, in spite of his sin, it is so obvious God is with this guy. And what a great testimony. That's, that's the testimony that all of us need to have because there's not coming a day anytime soon when you're going to be perfect. You're going to mess up. And yet when people see your weaknesses, your failures, and yet God still is with you, that's something amazing to behold. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, you should be blameless and innocent. Do your very best to have a good reputation no, not going to be perfect though, but children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You see, there should be such a contrast between you and the world around you that it's obvious for people to see. He said, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Um, Abraham and Isaac are proof that you don't need to be perfect to shine in a dark culture. I don't usually like to read things that are this long, but this is so worth reading. I heard this on a podcast recently, and I recommend this podcast, Breakpoint by the Colson Center. And it was about the mental health crisis in America. Listen very carefully. This is from the Centers of Disease Control, the government study here, okay? This is not written by Christians. This article is, but the, it's based on research. Listen carefully as I read this. St. Augustine famously observed that the human heart is restless until it has found its rest in God. That applies not only to individuals, but also to cultures and entire generations. Practically speaking, this restlessness can take many forms, including unprecedented mental health crisis. The recent and much talked about report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention describes precisely that. 
As a CDC spokesman bluntly stated, young people, especially young women, are in crisis. An article in the New York Times summarized nearly three in five teenage girls, 60%, felt persistent sadness in 2021. And one out of every three girls seriously considered attempting suicide. The author of The Coddling of American, the American Mind painted an even starker picture. He said, we are now 11 years into the largest epidemic of adolescent mental illness ever recorded. Are you seeing this in our world today? All this social media, all this stuff. We have teenagers who are depressed and suicidal. Not just 5%, 10%. Now up over 33% of our teenage girls are considering suicide because of the way our world is today. The timing of this unprecedented outbreak of anxiety, depression, and other mental health problems points out that corresponds suspiciously with the rise of smartphones and social media apps. This technology led to a culture-wide exchange and what he calls play-based childhood for exchange for screen-based childhood. That exchange likely helped create a generation with fragile psyches unable to deal with life's challenges. A, re- a reason that teen girls are especially hard hit in this crisis is, is they spend much more time on social media platforms and websites than engender social and body anxiety. However, political views also predict psych- psychological issues. Using Pew's research, American Trends Panel, they de- demonstrates that liberal leaning predicts worse mental health outcomes. Imagine that. In fact, a majority of self-identified progressive women in Gen Z report that they have diagnosed with mental health conditions. The farther you get away from God's word, the more likely you are to be suicidal. Who would have thought it? Age, sex, and politics are not only the only predictors of trouble. Using the same set of data, political scientist and pastor Ryan Bird suggests that religious commitment is another important factor. Those who rarely or never attend religious services suffer worse mental health than those who attend regularly or weekly. Go figure. That's why we're studying the book of Genesis. We're trying to get back to the foundation of society. Altogether and controlling it for economic and education, Americans under 25 are doing very badly when it comes to mental health. Those suffering the worst are young, female, liberal, and secular. Secular mean not religious. For them, brokenness is incredibly normal. On the other hand, the apparent insulating effect of religious faith and conservative philosophy is fascinating. Highly religious people are, in fact, more likely than their secular peers to describe themselves as very happy. One explanation for this is proven positive social effects of religious belonging. That's why community, Sunday gathering, is important. That's my words there. Including higher occurrences of stable, loving family relationships. For example, in 2020, the Institute for Family Studies reported that those who attend church regularly are more likely to get married than their non-religious neighbors and less likely to divorce. Still, it's worth considering whether the social benefits of religious commitment have something to do with the, the belief itself. Does an active faith in God reduce the impact of the mental health crisis on young people? Does a lack of religious faith leave others more vulnerable to it? Though a tough question to answer via social science, St. Augustine would say yes. Despite his lack of familiarity with the Gen Z, he would speak of their restless heart, seeking in politics, gender identity, and self-expression what can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we're teaching Genesis. We have an epidemic in our country right now. We have teens and adults 
addicted to their phones, spending way more time on Instagram and Facebook than they are in God's Word, spending way less time away from God's house and in other things, and we're reaping the harvest. It's not just, oh, you choose your way, I'll choose mine. We're talking about suicide going through the roof. We're talking about depression. We're talking about anxiety. We're talking about people being medicated instead of being comforted by the scriptures. It's definitely something worth considering for us as parents. So we see this plainly. So here's what we want. We want a sworn pact and a covenant. Two things. One is kind of a peace treaty and then a promise for the future. That you will do us no harm. We see that you're a growing population. And this is, this is kind of what, remember why Egypt started killing firstborn children among Israel? Okay, they were afraid of the same thing. And they said, I've done to you nothing but good, which isn't totally true. They kicked them out. And have sent you away in peace. Now you are, it didn't say you are blessed of the Lord or a blessed of the Lord. You are the blessed of the Lord. We see that your dad was the original patriarch. That blessing that your dad had has been passed on to you. You are now God's man on planet earth. So we recognize that. So he made them a feast. This is where we get the word cut a deal. Remember what Abraham, God did? They cut the animals in half and they walked through it. And then what they'll do is they eat the animals after they walk through the blood saying, hey, these animals represent that if we break the treaty, this is what will happen to you. And if I break it, this is what will happen to me. So in the morning they rose and they re- repeated their vows or exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. So they were no longer afraid of him. Proverbs 16 comments on this is when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You know what would be an amazing compliment to you at work? If, if someone said, you know what? I really don't like your beliefs and I'm not, all not that religious and I don't think, I don't agree with you on that, but I do respect how hard you work here and your contribution and I'm glad you work here. That'd be an amazing testimony, would it not? So that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they that we found water. Isn't that amazing? Isaac does the right thing. He loves his enemies. He cuts a covenant, promises him peace, and God blesses him with even more water. So he called it Sheba, which is the same word for seventh, the seventh day, the day of rest. So this is a place of rest, and it's, it's still called Beersheba to this day, even to this day. So we have the blessing in spite of famine. God still bless him in spite of his lying. God's blessing him in spite of all the difficulties. And God's blessing him in a way that other people see it. And that brings us to the last quick point here. Blessing in spite of family. Family can be a blessing and sometimes family can be a curse. In this case, it's a curse. So Esau reappears on the scene. He's 40 years old. He, not, he didn't just marry one woman. He married two. The Bible never endorses polygamy. It always shows it's a problem. Not only did he marry two women, he married two unbelieving women, two Hittites. And so what did this do to his parents? It made life bitter. Kids realize this, single adults. When you marry, you marry a family. And when you marry someone, you bring them into your family. And you should seek the advice of your family on who you marry. So it's my life, I can do what I want. Well, unless you're just going to move far away and never have contact with your family again, which I don't recommend at all. Family support is amazing and when it goes great. And so you need to consider who your family would even have you marry because it's, it's important. So do your best not to do anything to divide your family unless it's divided by Christ. You see, Christ 
We, he didn't just come to make everything honky-dory and everything peaceful. Sometimes Christ divides. Listen to what Jesus himself said. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, rather, I came to bring division. He'll bring peace the second time. He's bringing division the first time. He says, for from now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. Why is that? Because two became believers and three were not, and it divides the family. For they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. It goes on to say against mother-in-law. Of course, everybody's divided against mother-in-law. Just kidding. But God, through all this division, and even when we were divided from him because of our sin, what happened? God shows his love for us, and while we're yet sinners, sinners like Isaac, blessing through lying, blessing through famine, blessing through difficulty, God blesses us. And the greatest blessing of all is forgiveness of sins because of Christ. Do you know him? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? I talked about that a little bit earlier. I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just to join me in prayer as we wrap up. If you're a believer in Christ, would you pray for the Holy Spirit of God to open hearts to the gospel this morning? But if you don't know Christ, you're not sure. Maybe you made a decision in the past that you're not sure it was actually real. Why not make it real this morning? Why not have a conversation with God where you put your faith in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, that he paid for all of your sins on the cross. He was buried and he literally rose again. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Christ on the cross. Thank you that like Isaac, Jesus loves us through our ups and downs and that he's the only one that's perfect. We thank you for the eternal life that he provides in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you made a decision for Christ, I'd love to hear from you. If you still have questions about all this, please text me or call me. Let's get together. Um, We're going to do a question and answer session right now. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? And we actually had a question last week that was left there. We had so many questions last week that I couldn't do them all. So I told this person, I will answer this question this week. So um, here we go, man. If you'll read this first question for us. Okay. <laughs> if we're forgiven, why do people still go to hell if he died on the cross for our sins? And why does God allow evil to happen? So two questions there. If we're forgiven and Christ died for the sins of the world on the cross, why do people still go to hell? The answer is salvation is a gift. Jesus offers it to everyone, but not everybody accepts it. I could, I could say, hey, everybody meet me at the front door. I've got $100 bills. And for whatever reason, some of you decide to go out the other door. It's not yours until you accept it. And that's the reason. So did Christ die for the sins of the whole world? Yes. Do all accept it? No. What keeps them? Pride. No, I got this. I got this. You ever seen a two-year-old where you're trying to help? Oh, no, I do it. I do it, <laughs> you know? Okay, and then the second one is, why does God allow evil to happen? God allows evil. The short answer is because he allows free will. He, he doesn't force you to do his will. That's not love. You know, if I grab a puppy and say, you're going to love me, you're going to love me, you know? I can create a robot puppy that will always follow me and do whatever I want, but that's not true love. It has to have a choice. And, you know, and so most of the evil that's done in the world is done by people doing evil to one another because we have free will. That's the short answer. Go ahead. No, that's not. Whoops. Okay, I'll read this one. That was just a statement, but not a question. Uh, which would you do? Watch Jesus get baptized or watch Jesus ascend to heaven? Wow. Interesting question. Jesus' baptism, Jesus' ascension. Wow. <laughs> Because at both of them, the father says, this is my beloved son. 
it, is it from the cloud? Isn't there a voice from the cloud? Oh, that's right. Not the, I'm, I'm confusing the transfiguration with the ascension. At the ascension, two angels say, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? He's already told you to go. This same Jesus will come again as he went. That's pretty cool, angels. Baptism, the spirit sending like a love, a dove voice from heaven. Wow, that's hard to pick. I'll, I would flip a coin. Uh, I, think, I think I would pick the baptism just because there would be so many people there to see their reactions. Because there was only a few at the ascension, Peter, James, and John. That would be my pick. I was, and I was told I have to read this. Amen for all of it. Love your message. Okay. Yeah. And now, can we take a poll on the button up or button down topic? <laughs> um, I don't know what that. Sorry. The teens had a discussion. Some of the teens buttoned their shirt like this on the way down, and some start at the bottom and button up. Oh. <laughs> I know the answer is going to be. The majority is going to be, how many of you start here and go down? Raise your hand. Wow. Okay, it's the majority, but there's more than I thought. How many of you go bottom up? And then the rest of you don't button your shirts, I guess. All right. All right. Okay. That's more than I thought. Interesting. Take it for the team. No other questions. That's all the questions for now. All right, cool. All right, let's stand. And we're going to go through the prayer slide. I'm sorry, starting a little longer than normal, but long chapter, right? <clears throat> All right. Again, good to have guests, first, several first-time guests in the building today. Be sure to greet them on the way out. Let them know you're glad they're here. Let's pray. Patrick, would you pray for us, please, brother?